I'd like to return tonight to the series on the awakening factors. And tonight's is tranquility. I started with the uh, with mindfulness, the ground of the awakening factors, that uh, sparkling silence of awareness that notices just in the moment what is occurring, what's appearing, followed by investigation or the discernment of the nature of mind and body, of reality. And then energy, courageous energy, uh, that empowers the practice, helps us to stand firm in the moment, to be able to continue and sustain the noticing power of mind, uh, the energy that, that drives our entire spiritual life. And then uh, joy, our rapture, that brings great ease to the body and mind, uh, and good feeling, deep good feeling, with a profound interest, making all of practice an adventure in consciousness and awakening. So tonight's uh, talk is on the uh, fourth quality of awakening called pasadi, the pasadi bojanga, awakening factor. If you imagine the pond in the north end of the IMS property down there, its own nature of the element of water is stillness. And yet, if it's disturbed by wind, it becomes quite uh, turbulent. In the same way, if you understand how we largely live in a culture of anxiety and restlessness and, and a fractured consciousness, with turbulent mental waves that move the mind like the wind-whipped pond. You know the difference between the stillness of tranquility and the agitation of restlessness or anxiety. In our daily life, often that sense of feeling disconnection, where we don't feel present for ourselves or others, the sense of missing rather than connecting, we often can feel a uh, low-level, uh, agitated agenda in our relationships or communication or activities. Just that sense of, of wanting something so that we're really unable to truly uh, listen to ourselves or others uh, or be listened to. We act in a manner or direction that's commensurate with that underlying agenda or desire rather than aware of the desire, yet still somehow unconditionally present, anchored in the moment. Um, Self-judgment often issues from this agitation, a projection of our problems or faults onto the outside situation, our people, uh, regrets of past, worry of the future, seeking a kind of um, counterfeit calm in fantasy, in escape, distraction, you know, and notice the agitation that came perhaps uh, some of you felt in the changeover last week uh, and how many 
ways that you find to soothe that agitation or restlessness. Checking out the IMS TV, the bulletin board, for any kind of change, anything new that you could be drawn into, or the fantastic dharmic fantasies or ideas you have about when you, when you get enlightened, and, uh, or how you'll create uh, oases of dharma all over the planet. Anyways, any way that you can fill the mind with these thoughts that can at least temporarily soothe the mind. Whatever news, substances, uh, books, the outside world, the, uh, the religion of consumerism, all are really meant as ways to soothe uh, that agitation. In practice, with levels of initial concentration being somewhat uh, tender in the beginning reveals to awareness the scatteredness of mind. Um, we see how much the mind will wander from the effort to stay connected to the moment. Even in deeper levels of concentration, even in the early uh, jhanic stages in vipassana or, or uh, pure concentration practices, it can still be associated with restlessness kind of like what we call in Hawaii a kona wind, a wind that comes from the south. It brings something in the atmosphere that makes uh, everyone and everything seem just a little bit off, kind of an atmospheric agitation that's, that's internalized. Uh, and it affects everybody. So in that same way, the quality of a restless state of mind uh, can affect all the other associated mind states. Even the other awakening factors seem off, energy or concentration, investigation. They all seem to be themselves uh, vibrating with this, this restless energy. Contentment seems you know, just out of reach. And connection seems just out of reach. You're trying to attend to that arm that's reaching for the plate or the utensil, and it's, it's just missing. You know the arm is reaching, you're trying to feel the sensations. Uh, it's just not happening. It feels distant. You feel separate from it. External and internal conditions might be quite adequate. You know, a lot of skillful mind states uh, and the quiet of the, the environment, the retreat environment. Still, there's this current of anxiety running underneath. You can directly experience dukkha uh, as this anxiety, especially when we don't really attend to dukkha, to the nature of unsatisfactoriness. Then that anxiety or restlessness really affects everything. It's just not connecting. It's pervasive. And we need to develop a relationship with this restless quality, this anxious quality, in order to bring any tranquility into our lives, into our practice. In fact, restlessness is one of the very last hindrances, fetters, to go. It's only, it's only uprooted with arhantship, full enlightenment. So we may as well get used to working with it. <laughs> Pasadi Bojanga, the awakening factor of, of tranquility, arises as a result of 
of mindfulness and the discernment of pre-verbal investigation and energy and rapture of all these mitigating mental agitation, soothing mental restlessness and producing instead a tranquil uh, peace in consciousness. The characteristic in the Buddhist psychology is of calming, soothing agitation in the heart. And its function is the, it's cooling the heat of the restless mind, agitated mind, anxiety, and bringing about an ease of being. So it manifests, we experience it as a steady and tranquil deportment of, of the body and the mind. It'd be like then going to the pond and seeing the rippled surface of the pond becoming quite still, smooth. Here the heart then is calm. The mental way is easily reabsorbed into consciousness. It doesn't mean that, that the waves don't arise, but like in a large sea, they seem to easily be reabsorbed and calmness restored. The previous bojanga of piti, rapture, in, particularly in its uh, most powerful mode, that fifth stage of piti, that all-pervasive rapture, is linked with strong tranquility. Rapture fills the body and soothes the mind uh, in those types of sittings or walkings where you feel really connected really feel quite still, even amidst uh, lots of phenomena and things going on. Uh, often it's when those types of sittings that seem to pass really quickly, or you, you're just not moving and you don't want to get up at the end of the sitting. Just at rest in that mental stillness. But by itself, even rapture as an awakening factor is subtly flawed because it too contributes to a, a restlessness in the mind. As, as, as practice gets more subtle, as the mind gets more quiet, it's notice as a very subtle kind of, kind of agitation. It tends to excite the mind and bring too much uh, energy and not enough tranquility. So it requires the calm to be complete, to be balanced for the contentment, for that coolness of the mind and body, for the composure that's necessary to uh, uh, continue in depth in practice. A couple of years ago when I returned to Burma uh, for my own period of practice, I went to place in Upper Burma, the Sagain Hills, during the rains retreat. It was about uh, in September. And at that time, everything is, is, uh, is green and lush. And arriving there, I felt, from the moment of getting there, this, this rapture in the mind. I felt uh, just held in this environment with its uh, the kind, the strong sense that you experience after a hard rain when it's been dry 
and the whole forests and bush and flowers, everything sends out that aroma of nature uh, and the lush beauty, the inspiring uh, sounds of, of chanting, monks and nuns chanting, and the, uh, uh, the soothing tinkle of the temple bells, uh, the most generous and, and loving people, the nuns and the monks, all those uh, brought this incredible uh, rapture to the mind and then it made it possible to settle in with a, a, a tranquil composure and contentment for the practice. In the same way, uh, pusity, calm or tranquility, is explained in the, in the uh, text as the rapture being like that first flush of getting what you want. And the tranquility is the settling in, blending, and being, just being with what is, at rest, content. It's this state of tranquility that's the, the mental manifestation of a fully enlightened being, of an arahant. Uh, or it's also seen as a, as a requisite to be developed for awakening. Krishnamurti once said, when the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any answer or solution even, neither resisting nor avoiding, it is only then that there can be a regeneration, because then the mind is capable of perceiving what is true. And it is the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. Tranquility is a, a quality then of the heart where that aids the process of seeing clearly with that necessary contentment uh, and also the quality of being at ease, a compassionate way of being, able to, to wisely discern what is helpful and what is a hindrance to the awakening process, both in our lives and in the intricate subtleties of practice of moment-to-moment -moment little shifts or adjustments in our practice. Here's a story of embodied tranquility. Once our Bodhisattva was born as a prince, and soon after he had a, a brother born by uh, the queen about a year later. Uh, both of them were, had qualities of great uh, wisdom and understanding. But the Bodhisattva, the firstborn, uh, was even wiser. And at the age of 16, he was offered the throne when the king passed away. And he said, no, he didn't want it. He didn't care much for these things, these matters. He just kept to himself. It was quite quiet. And so his brother took it. And, and soon the brother uh, became a bit corrupted uh, and began to listen to rumors about his older brother, who seemed to be so quiet, but was told that he had designs on, on the power, on taking over the kingship and so forth. So, but he had lots of friends, the, our bodhisattva. His name was Asadisa, and he was told uh, that uh, they were coming to imprison him. So, he didn't care, uh, but he just slipped out, you know, feeling a bit hurt that his brother would see this. Uh, and clearly that his gifts were unnoticed, but he just left anyway. 
traveled a long ways, finally came to another kingdom. And there he announced himself to the king of this realm. And a courtier went to the king and said, this guy is downstairs. He says he's a prince. He said he's good with archery, and he happened to be very skilled at it. And the king said, well, you know, what does he want to be in my employ? And the courtier, with embarrassment and fear, said, he wants 100,000. And the king said, very well, hire him. And they came to know each other. And the king clearly, before even seeing him, sensed his, his goodness and his greatness uh, and mentored him. The other old archers grumbled, you know, said, oh, this young upstart getting too much and so forth. So they kind of ignored him. He just, he just went around wearing whites uh, and no one had any clue, any idea. He seemed really quiet, uh, but they didn't understand the power of such tranquility. So one day, the king was out in his pleasure garden uh, on a certain couch by a certain great uh, seat of ceremony. And he looked up and he saw in the mango tree this great cluster of mangoes. And he thought, ah, I'd like mango. And he called his archers. And the archers said, well, that's nothing for us. Why don't you call this, uh, this kid and see what he can do with his bow and arrow? Very well, said the king. And they called Asadisa. Asadisa came and the king said, can you shoot down that uh, cluster of mangoes? And Asadisa said, well, I can if I can choose my spot. The king said, well, what's your spot? My spot is right where you are, king. <laughs> right by the seat of the ceremony. So the king said, okay. And he got up. And the, no one had yet seen Nasadisa do anything. You know, in fact, they didn't even see him with a bow and arrow. So Nasadisa said, I have all my accoutrements underneath my whites. I'll need a screen to change. So they brought a screen. And Nasadisa went behind the screen. And he took off his uh, white clothes and had a bag in there and pulled out this, uh, this red garment that he put on crimson red garment that covered him all the way head to foot or shoulders to feet. And then he pulled out a wide midnight black belt went around his waist and then put on a red waist cloth, the co color of uh, vermilion, bright and shiny. And then he took out his sword in small pieces and fit them together so expertly made couldn't tell that they were in pieces. And he gird that uh, in, on his left side. And then he, he uh, pulled out his, his ram's horn bow, which was also in pieces in the bag. And that also was so excellently crafted that you couldn't tell that it was not one piece. And, they, and the bowstring, which was the color of, of red coral. And he fastened the bow case over his back and took out the, uh, the, uh, the arrows, also all in pieces, and put them together. <laughs> Did this all quite fast, too. <laughs> and then he, he took out a, a dashing turban, put that on his head, which fitted finely over his cold black curls. And then 
a golden uh, coat of mail he put on his top, mail, that, that armor. And then twirling one of the diamond-tipped arrows on his fingernail, he pushed back the screen and came out. <laughs> Looking magnificent, like a, a mythical naga from a river palace. And everyone, of course, swooned. And by this time, there were thousands of people there. And Asadisa said, he went to the spot. Then he went to his spot, took out the arrow and the bow and set it. And then he put this question to the king. He said, King, your majesty, I'm about to make this shot, but I want to know if you want me to bring the uh, cluster of mangoes down with an upward shot or a downward shot. And the king said, well, many times have I seen my archers bring down the cluster of mangoes with an upward shot. Never have I seen it brought down with a downward shot. You'd better do it that way. So Asadis said, okay. And he said, your majesty, I'm going to shoot this arrow. It's going to go right up to the center of the cluster. And it's going to take some time when it goes up, to turn around and come back down. I need you to be patient. He said, okay, I'll be patient. And he said, when the first arrow goes up, I'm going to shoot the second arrow, and you might hear some sounds. Don't be afraid. King said, okay. So then he made his shot. Swift as lightning, the arrow went right up to the center, the cluster of the mangoes and went all the way up to the deva realm of the four great kings and queens. <laughs> and just before it reached there, he shot the second arrow, which tipped the feathers of the first arrow and sent it back on its downward journey. The, the second arrow went on up to the deva realm of the 33 gods and goddesses. And there they caught it and kept it. <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> The second arrow, uh, the first arrow, now on its journey back down, uh, cleft the heavens like, like an intense thunderclap, and the ground shook, and everyone got afraid. But with a soothing, honey-sweet voice, our Bodhisattva Asadisa said, fear nothing, it'll be okay. And the arrow came back down, right through not a hair's breadth swerving, left or right, right to the same spot, but took down the last little shred holding the mangoes. And he caught the mangoes in one hand and the arrow in the other hand. <coughs> the king and all the people simultaneously said, of course, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and they bestowed all kinds of gifts and honors on our Asadisa. Just about this time, a courier came from Asadisa's home kingdom and said, Seven kings have surrounded the kingdom, and your brother is in mortal danger, and he's afraid. And he asked me to come here and apologize for the way he treated you all these years. And would you come back and help? Sure, said Asadisa. And he asked kindly for his leave from the great mentor king, who had blessed him with, uh, with his love and his affirming presence. The, uh, and and uh, the request was granted. 
So he came back and he uh, accepted the forgiveness from his brother and said, don't worry. Cool, calm. He took out one of his arrows, another diamond-tipped arrow, and he wrote on the arrow shaft, if you care for your life, flee. This is Asadisa, and I am back. <laughs> and he took the arrow, and it went flying through the air a couple miles, right through the tent, and into the, uh, the dinner meal where the seven kings were seated, planning their uh, assault on the kingdom. And they saw it, and they read it, and they fled. <laughs> and this is how our Asadisa, without shredding even the tiniest drop of blood, even the drop of blood of a fly, how with his tranquility and his wisdom and his skills uh, brought about and saved the kingdom of his, uh, his home kingdom. And he put all the seven kings to flight. Looking at his younger brother, he said, after being offered, the kingdom back, he said, no, I don't think so. He said, I'm interested in other things. And he left to go practice. In fact, he said he was on his way to IMS. <laughs> he wanted to be a yogi, for he valued most of all uh, the inner life, the tranquility, and the depth of understanding. So, there's many lessons here. Maybe they'll become apparent. Developing tranquility um, comes about from several means. The classical means, where, where um, the texts recommend uh, special effort in developing tranquility, are seven in number. The first being good food, the second being good climate. Sorry about that one. <laughs> the third, a comfortable posture in meditation or in walking. The fourth, balanced effort, where one is neither over-enthusiastic or lazy, uh, finding that, that uh, right tune in the mind, in the heart, for our practice, for our energy. And the fifth is avoiding ill-tempered or angry people. And the sixth is associating with those who are calm and quiet of mind and body. And the seventh, inclining the mind toward peacefulness. All these are by ways of activating skillful thoughts, skillful emotions, skillful mind states with the other awakening factors, investigation, energy, uh, joy. These other bojangas bring about, open up, and direct our energy toward these skillful states, help cultivate them, draw them out. And tranquility uh, arises uh, as we begin to penetrate the Four Noble Truths, as we begin to see things as they are. The aim of all these bojangas is the end of suffering by opening to it, not by avoiding it, by going right into the heart of it. The bojangas are about healing 
on two levels. The mind and body is one level. And secondly, the healing on the samsaric level, dispersing Mara's armies, the forces of Mara. It's the very deepest level. The mind-body level is by way of drawing out our authenticity, like that selfless compassion and wisdom that defines one's worthiness or greatness. When Asadisa pushes the screen aside and comes out showing that side of himself, showing his light, his gold, he's displaying uh, this authenticity of being, this greatness of being, selfless greatness of being. Whereas the second is liberation. So the healing on the samsaric level is the utter and complete freedom of heart. To, to get the samsaric level of healing is to get the, the biggest picture. That vast vision, that mythic time through which we travel in this awakening journey. And we need for that uh, a strong and healthy, empowered mind-body. We need that authenticity of being. We need to draw forth our greatness. Those qualities hidden by the appearance, the outer appearance, often of calm and tranquility, but a very facet, in fact, of that greatness. Deepening practice, the unification of mind, the samadhi that develops, lifts the mental waves, lifts the, the deep mental conditioning, including all the wounds of our psyche. Sooner or later, it all comes up, the anxiety, the restlessness. Often, they're mere symptoms of not feeling rooted, not feeling at home in ourselves, not feeling at home in, in the universe. The causes and conditions for this are, are many-fold. It can be our karmic knots and disposition that lift it. It can be our, the quality of our heart consciousness at the time of practice, cultural family conditioning. All of these can mask the pasadi, the calm and tranquility that we need for this journey. Certain patterns of mind uh, go unrecognized. That is, they stay in the shadows, e even with practice, even with some of the deepest practice. Uh, but they sooner or later have to be brought into awareness, have to be seen, too, as just dhammas, just nature coming forth to be known. A lot of the conditioning we come to recognize as a, a resistance, what we could call the protective attitudes, once useful, now they obscure, make it hard to access, to access the depths of our psyche and to bring calm and tranquility, to bring the healing of the mind and body or the healing of samsara. These protective attitudes distance awareness from opening to the truth opening to the Four Noble Truths, to dukkha, to suffering. And we feel disconnected from uh, emotions. Thus, what once served us now 
uh, we feel a distance from that sense of being at home, of being connected, being whole within ourselves. And here we're actually denying the Four Noble Truths. We're denying suffering and the longings associated with it. We need a blessing. We need the blessings of practice. Just as the, the good king who mentored Asadisa by blessing him with affirmation, with recognition of his goodness, with metta, and with opportunity. So we need the, the blessing of, of, met, of metta, unconditional love, uh, which is as essential to the growth and recognition of our worthiness as mother's milk to an infant. If we are to nurture a healthy, happy, tranquil sense of oneself, we need, we need blessing. Protective attitudes were developed in the first place by our young wisdom, our tender wisdom, uh, to protect us from pain, protect us from dukkha, before we had the wisdom and, compa and compassion to hold it, to open to it fully. So they defend against the pain of these painful emotions, the suffering. A large part of our practice is to find within, sometimes first without, that blessing, that affirmation uh, that is both appropriate and timely, uh, to fill that sense of goodness. If we didn't get it, and most of us didn't, at certain important stages of our lives, uh, when the world, or our environment, our caretakers, were not timely and appropriate in, in offering this blessing of affirmation, if our core being was not attuned to in skillful ways, we weren't allowed to mourn, to feel and express feelings about difficulties and the experience of loss, then we didn't get that blessing. And much of practice is a return to that blessing. In fact, there's a whole sutta called the Mangala Sutta about blessings, 37 different blessings. And in, in in those blessings, you can find a lot of, of what I'm speaking on tonight. So not being blessed, we're vulnerable, we're raw, open, vulnerable to these unbearable uh, assaults of feeling, the, uh, feeling unrecognized, unworthy, and the raw emotions of that, the fear of that, and the longings of that. And so we're forced to develop uh, survival strategies uh, to help us live at the expense of a true tranquility at the core of our being. The refuge of tranquility, of peace, of calm, is essential for our journey. So we have to find ways of restoring that. And it begins by seeing the forms of 
how these protective measures work through attachment and aversion, how they work in our personality. So we might see them as gestures of longing and feelings of abandonment, ways of filling out and understanding how uh, the attachment and aversion, which are the hidden, are the hidden qualities of these protective measures, working in our personality as these gestures of longing and feelings of abandonment. These behaviors uh, point out to us that we haven't been adequately blessed. To be adequately blessed means we have a core personality uh, that is cohesive, flexible, a buoyant sense of our inner being with confidence, with energy, with vigor, with joy, aliveness, and tranquility. Gestures of longing, uh, we may be revealed in our experience of, as long, longing for connection, longing for the condition of suffering to end, longing for peace of being, uh, from not feeling rooted, not feeling at home in ourselves. We long to be loved and able to love unconditionally. We long for acceptance. We're looking for that home within ourselves. We're seeking out mirroring and acceptance, but, but we seek it from this center of anxiety, which is a symptom of defending against those inner wounds, that inner suffering, that pain. We're unable to connect with a, tr with a, a true, legitimate need, with our deepest desire. Sometimes this longing can be distorted, sexualized, eroticized. We, we are hooked by the promise of, of possibility, of fulfillment. But even feeling fulfilled briefly leaves us then again empty because it's not accompanied with compassion and understanding, wisdom. So when not forthcoming, when we don't feel this fulfillment, when we don't feel our longing, our longings really met, uh, then the opposite can happen. We can plunge into depressive feelings of abandonment, uh, which is a defense against painful emotions. Behind that, behind the depressive feelings of abandonment, that is uh, the ways in which we felt loss, uh, our absence of blessing, absence of unconditional love. Behind that are, is anger and fear, terror, envy, rage, or sadness. We can't really get to these feelings because of the way we defend against them. We can't get to all those, really touch the, the, the desires uh, because of the way we defend against them with these longings. They're, they're grandiose longings, fantasies of paradise, of perfection, of being okay. So it prevents us from touching the pain of that wanting. We can't get to the anger, the loss, the terror, the rage, the sadness, because it's kind of covered, they're shielded 
with these depressive feelings of abandonment. Defense against what once was unbearable emotions. So there's a powerlessness there. We feel unloved, we feel inadequate, not good enough, unsafe. In practice, we, we're subscribing to a culture of renunciation. That is, we're letting go a lot of the props that, that uh, uh, we can use as defenses to what's painful. Uh, in fact, this renunciation provides a generosity of possibility. That's how we understand generosity in its high, or renunciation in its highest form. which is generosity. The longings get lifted. We, we often experience missing people. Our um, longing for something outside that we didn't have, or some memory of some way we were touched. We want that back. We have to continuously uh, stay connected with the longing and not the fantasy. Fantasy keeps distancing ourselves from feeling the pain of the wanting or the pain of the separation. I remember in one retreat, uh, I had been used to sitting retreats uh, and taking the eight precepts, not eating afternoon. Uh, but at one early retreat, the the Saidal, my teacher, our teacher, was taking a, a, a vitamin drink in the afternoon uh, called spirulina, you know, that green drink. And so I started to take it myself and look forward to it. You know, every day at five o'clock, it was like a little, uh, like it, was, it was nurturing and I enjoyed it. It was a little special thing, a drink of, green drink of spirulina and a couple of chewable vitamin C wafers. And then at this one retreat, someone announced, after a question was asked, that spirulina was a food. You know, and you know, many of you had these questions, of what is allowable and what isn't allowable? And it's a debate that'll go on for centuries, I'm sure, uh, which teas are okay, and you, know, you can have Coca-Cola and soda and sugar and honey and all this stuff, but you, know, you can't have black tea or coffee, and you know, what's the deal? And so vitamins are often allowed, but someone said, who was giving the, uh, the, the lowdown on what eight precepts meant, said spirulina is not allowable. You know, and I went through a major papancha mind attack, <laughs> such that in the middle of the night, I, I went with, a, with my uh, magnifying glass and a flashlight into the kitchen and began to read the label, compare the labels of spirulina with real vitamins. You know, and was prepared to write a whole treatise on how you know vitamins, the ingredients in vitamins could make uh, a hamburger, but was non-vegetarian, or you know, our tofu yeast burger or something if they're vegetarian. And and my mind just went way off like that, and how innocent spirulina was by comparison. <laughs> At some point, I just dropped it completely. Uh, including deciding not to take the spirulina, which probably wouldn't have made all that much difference. Confidence and tranquility, calm, become uh, quite fragile 
in these moments when we're uh, working with these gestures of longing or these depressive feelings of abandonment uh, as defenses against dukkha, as against pain. Uh, they are shattered, they're absent, are, are, they fluctuate a lot. Our sense of worth fluctuates between the two poles, those grandiose longing states and those uh, depressive feelings. And our authenticity and deep desire for liberation also become buried between the two extremes. And that greatness of being based on selfless compassion and wisdom embodied by, by, by Asadisa when, when he showed him, displayed himself in his greatness, uh, are, is covered by these feelings of estrangement from oneself. Not in a wise way in which sometimes experiencing anatta we feel like strangers, but in a painful way of disconnection. The beauty of practice is that even in the deepest sense of selflessness where one may not have any sense at all, haven't a clue of who they are, and yet they've never felt closer to themselves. That's very different than not having a clue who you are, but feeling very distant from yourself. That's what I'm talking of here, being, being estranged, not feeling real, not feeling alive, not feeling connective, connected, rather feeling split a lot. The, the psyche's fractured into all these pieces. It's like throwing rocks into the pond that mirror all in different directions. Feel raw and exposed like an uprooted tree or diminished like one of those Russian dolls that you take it apart and there's another one, another doll, and you unscrew that and there's a smaller one. And you unscrew that and there's yet a smaller one, all the way down to a very small, diminished one. And that's how one feels, very diminished and disconnected. We may use intellectual reasoning also as a kind of defense trying to explain everything to ourselves psychologically or figure it out in that way. But that often increases the sense of, of disconnection or numbness to feelings, distanced from feelings. This is natural. We're afraid to feel those deep feelings, to feel the real needs. They've been denied before. We practice in an environment that's conducive to igniting these awakening factors, to bring about this ground of pure, unconditional awareness that accepts everything just as it is. And the discernment that goes in to it, to the core, deeply, right through all the protective measures, to feel the feelings just as they are, and the energy to stay with it, and to direct the course in a skillful means way, 
knowing when to back off, knowing when to go in, knowing when to find refuge in a neutral anchor, and so forth. And touching joy to bring an ease and power and light to the body that brings about the tranquility necessary to go in to the truth, to open to the truth, to the dukkha. Our protective attitudes, we start to see, prevent the awareness, the direct awareness of suffering or pain. Opening to this suffering, to the pain of anxiety or restlessness, opening to those longings and depressive associated states, fear and anger, rage, sadness, as they arise, we begin to let go out of not needing any longer these protective attitudes. They don't serve anymore in this environment. We can, we can replace them with other kinds of protection, mindfulness itself, all these awakening factors, compassion. The healing, the empowerment, the restoration of that sense of worthiness come from the full acknowledgement and awareness and direct experience of dukkha. The direct experience of dukkha means becoming aware of our needs and our pain, of our suffering with metta, with compassion, with understanding. We can take then desire to the very deepest level of that urge for authenticity, urge for uh, a healed, empowered, whole mind-body, and the samsaric urge for liberation. Often even in the depths of practice, we still carry a fantasy. Well, everything will be better if I f really find what I'm looking for. Everything will be better if I just meditate long enough and good enough. It won't work. Because that if, if I only do it this way, even when it's if, even if I meditate, even that fantasy is born of the anxiety itself to fix or change and not of an acceptance of the suffering. So if we come with that attitude, it's still one of those protective attitudes. It's still somehow defending us against the truth of dukkha. So when we truly experience pain and grief with unconditional awareness, inclusive of the compassion and the love, in this moment, a profound tranquility is possible. When we truly experience the dukkha in this moment, must be anchored somehow in the present moment. It can't be a reflection of what just happened. It can't be an anticipation, anticipation of how we might do it. All those and many other forms 
are still a resistance, a protective measure. How do we know? We know it when whatever is happening is experienced as not okay. How do we know when we're anchored in the moment? We know we're anchored in the moment when however we're experiencing the dukkha, there's a sense that it's okay. It's painful, it's grief, it's difficult, but it's okay. The key, the magic, is mindfulness. Genuine mindfulness, which only operates purely and completely, fully, from the present moment. So if we're anchored in our body, in the breath, if we're anchored in awareness itself, anchored in something neutral like sounds. As long as we're anchored in something and present, then there's that sense of okayness. And we're connecting directly with our own uh, uh, worthiness. Become aware then of what we really want. Become, a, become aware of our, of our legitimate needs. Not the neurotic overlays which again, are just those protective covers. Our desires and fears that the surface with the pain enable us to turn inward and to find our center of wisdom and compassion from which we then can know and strive toward what is good for the, for the opening for the healing. In this way, all of practice and all of these awakening factors and the tranquility that comes about, that peace in the midst of things as they are, even in the midst of the storms of mind-body events, of phenomena, or a restoration of our true nature, that place of goodness, of value, of worthiness, of vigor, of joy, of tranquility itself. In all of your practice, and you could even start each of your sittings this way, incline your mind toward peacefulness. You can, you can just say that. May I incline my mind heart, or may I incline toward peacefulness. And find, as well as you can, find comfort in how you sit, how you walk. Feel yourself nurtured from food, from the environment. Use wise reflection when you can as ways of bringing about a soothing sense of blessing. Use the metta. Use the metta practice to create a surround of affirmation so that you, you, you bless your core being. You feel that affirmation recognition, value. 
Lean back into that stillness. Close with a quote from uh, Rilke. Were it possible for us to see further than our knowledge reaches and yet a little way beyond the outworks of our divination, perhaps we would then endure our sorrows with greater confidence than our joys. For they are the moments when something new has entered us, something unknown. Our feelings grow mute in shy perplexity. Everything in us withdraws. A stillness comes. And the new, which no one knows, stands in the midst of it and is silent. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.